This episode is brought to you by Tillit, the style leader in hospitality workwear and hotel and restaurant uniforms. Learn more at TillitNYC.com. Meet and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home, Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull and attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Why Food, a podcast about innovators, entrepreneurs, career changers, cool, wacky, interesting people who have uh, done cool, wacky, interesting things and are now working in food, which is not cool, not wacky, or interesting. It it's is just cool. boring and terrible all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm your co host, Ethan Frisch. I'm Jenny Dorsey. And we are joined this week by the awesome Alicia Kennedy, who is a freelance food writer and podcast host. Uh, an expert in veganism, and uh, her podcast is called Meatless, which we'll talk about a little later, I'm sure. Alicia, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thank you. And my, my life is definitely wackier since I got into food. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Wackier and better. Wackier, and much better. Wackier how? And you're also in food in a lot of different ways. Right. right. Cooking it, serving it, right. eating it, Baking. talking about it, writing about <laughs> it, pouring, pouring wine for people. At... Right, which I, I actually just put in my notice. But oh, yeah. congratulations. <laughs> All right. But yeah, no, so because I used to be a copy editor at New York Magazine, um, which is like the most not wacky job you mm. can possibly have, like <laughs> enforcing grammar rules and style. Yeah. Enforcing them on who? On, on the writers of, of New York Magazine. Were they, uh, how did they respond? Yeah. Sometimes it was bad. Sometimes it was good. <laughs> <laughs> so then what was the, how did you? How did, let's talk about this. Why food? How did you make right. that transition? Right. So um, I've always loved food and eating. And uh, when I was in high school, I thought I'd go to culinary school, but then I didn't. Um, I went to school for English instead. And then when I graduated, actually, my first writing job was reviewing restaurants for this website called um, Geo, I think it's called. It's like a travel website, and they would have little blurbs. So I would review different restaurants on Long Island, where I'm from. Um, and yeah, that was my first foray into writing was actually writing about restaurants, which I didn't anticipate. And, and but then it came full circle many years later when I was copy editing, became vegan, decided I wanted to bake vegan. Well, didn't didn't actively seek creating a business, but ended up creating a business because I just started baking a lot and had to do something with it. And then, um, yeah, and then did that. And then uh, that I ended the bakery my ex and I broke up. That happened. And so that, that's what that happened there. And then um, I decided I wanted to write about food because I felt like I had a different perspective from having written about it and also being focused on veganism and like knowing all these like cool little businesses that I thought, you know, should get attention that that weren't getting attention. And then, you know, I found out that they weren't getting attention because no one really cares that much. But I've tried to make people care. <laughs> so how, how do you make people care about 
Oh boy, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, you've you've done a like you've done a lot of big pieces recently. You wrote a, a very significant in length and right. and sort of depth and content about Puerto Rico, right? Food systems post post hurricane. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, so you've you've taken a in your writing career have taken a a, a real uh, stance on bringing attention to issues in food that are not being talked right, about. Right. 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 Why yeah. Why is that? important to you or what um, you know I don't know uh, I think it, it, that's just where my interests lie and I, I think I would be so bored if I was you know I do write like a lot of neighborhood guides for like Edible Brooklyn and Edible Manhattan and like if that was my whole life I would you know I, I would run be, out of things exactly <laughs> I would be very unhappy so um, it, you know it, it makes me excited to kind of shed light on on like basically colonialism and the ways in which that affects the foodways of, of Puerto Rico and, and shine a light on all the, the people there who are making pushes toward food sovereignty. Like that's that's been a focus of mine for four years. I've been going there and reporting on on chefs and on agriculture there and, and also on bars and cocktails there since uh, for four years. So um, yeah, and this one big piece um, for how we, how we get to next, uh, where I was the food columnist is... Uh, was really the the kind of culmination of, of a lot of that work. Um, how do you get, like, what do you think is the big thing in just pieces in general? How do you get people to care about something that they might be unfamiliar with? Right. And also, in the case of Puerto Rico, they're kind of detached from physically. Right. Um, but yet, like, we need people to care. I, I mean, strong characters, I think. I mean, it, that storytelling in general, right, is, is to present people who have a very clear point of view are all often pretty eccentric um, <laughs> and, you know, are, are open to talking really open, honestly, about, you know, the ways in which their work and is impacted by these massive political decisions in which they have no say whatsoever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, characters, I think, are always and hopefully the writing's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us about veganism how that became a, a part of your right right your right personal interest and, and expertise <laughs> i've always been interested in veganism like i mean he's persona non grata now and should be forever but moby when i read his <laughs> the lighter notes of uh play when i was 13 and i he, it was like my second concert ever um it was very influential to me and i like i had this like really strong drive to stop eating meat and like eventually be vegan um but that didn't work because my parents you know, I, I have a lot of people on my podcast where they're like, oh, my parents were accepting or they were just like, oh, just you just cook your food. And like for me, it was like, no, like it was just you, you're not going to do that. Like and I would try I would get like two days before someone would like wave a chicken wing in my face. But um, what was what was their uh, hesitation? Like, why why weren't they supportive? They just didn't. I mean, I don't know. My I have very young parents who are also like they worked a lot. And it was like, I you know, it was just another thing to put them through. Like. So, yeah. yeah, it was and, and no one took it. No one took me seriously, <laughs> which I guess, you know, maybe my whole career is just begging people to take me seriously now. But um, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like I, I always had that that drive, I guess. And then like when I was in my mid 20s and I was like hated being a copy editor, it was so boring. And I was like started going to yoga a lot. And then like all of a sudden I was vegan and then I was baking vegan and, and that sort of thing. And, and my interest in it has evolved and changed because I, I became vegan in 2011. Um, I decided to loosen up and be more like kind of 80% vegan, 20% vegetarian in the last couple of years. Um, and yeah, the, the, the motivations behind it have, have changed a lot uh, where it used to just be like all about ethics and animals. And, and now it's more about I want to eat in the way 
and support the best way to eat for like uh, our ecological you know uh, well-being and for um, you know for to support local economies like that's more of how I, I perceive the way I eat now what do you think about um, for veganism and also just I think the whole eating local eating better farm-to-table movement where many times it is more expensive or it's different right. it's very inaccessible like how can we make that system better so that people who want to be vegan or want to be vegetarian even 80% of the time can feel like they can do that. Right. And I mean, that's, that's the big, the big million dollar question. (laughs) But, um, I mean, I think for me, focusing on vegetables has been the most important thing and focusing on what you can do with vegetables and what you can do with like less processed foods. And a lot of the mainstream discussion of veganism is about things like beyond burgers and impossible burgers, which I am, you know, a very vocal hater of, but, so uh, so, tell us, well, I mean, finish your thought, but tell us, tell us why you're a, a, a very vocal opponent of the our last uh, podcast guest, or our last last guest, um, Will Horowitz, had a similar stance. Oh, cool! I yeah. need to listen to this then. <laughs> um, yeah, they are. Is it, I mean, it kind of answers the question I was already answering, which is they kind of encourage all the worst tendencies of our food system, which is, and I mean, this is super evident now because Impossible Burgers are like going into Burger King, and now to keep up with the demand, they have to use GMO soy in mm. the in the process. And the thing is, is like, well, we should stop trying to meet the demands of something like Burger King. We should be trying to focus our resources more locally and then it, it, it costs 80 million dollars to create it and now i just read a piece the other day like that people are you know there there's a multi-billion dollar search to you know replace vegan egg, to replace eggs with with some vegan product and it's like there's flax there's our root there's cornstarch there's we already have things that do these and leah yeah. agar um we don't need like uh, the algae eggs necessarily. I mean, uh, but yeah. So just so veganism is it connects to these questions of accessibility and how to uh, create a more equitable food system because it should be thinking about itself as uh, a way of eating that supports uh, vegetables and local thing, local farmers and, and sort of that sort of thing. How do you feel about kelp? Kelp seems great. I touched some kelp recently. Um, no, I was at uh, I was at a restaurant. The chef was like, "Oh, I have some kelp that this guy brought me. I'm going to do something with it." Like, and he brought it out, and I touched it, and it felt like plastic. Um, and yeah, I guess it's harvested in like Connecticut or something. Okay. Um, I haven't eaten anything cool with kelp, but I look forward to it. Yeah, uh, Will has said that kelp is like super sustainable. It's right. really great, and he thinks it's going to be the next big thing. So I'm like kind of curious. To- right. What but I mean, I think the it. thing is, the next big thing is we have to stop that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, so what What should we do instead? What's the? I mean, I. I mean, people love getting excited about trends. trendy new foods. I know, I know, and I guess you benefit from this in ways with. Well, with... we we import kelp. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping kelp takes I have off some of your um, kelp. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I I mean I I completely agree with you that that like the the emphasis on the next big thing is is a little bit misdirected. We should all appreciate the things that are already available and get to know our pantry better rather than try to add more things to it, especially when we're talking about something like an Impossible Burger, which is a highly processed, not very healthy, uh, just sort of a a recreation of vegetables that you could eat in their regular form. But (laughs) instead we have to color them and flavor them and squish them into a patty and make them look like something that they're not. Um, But on the other hand, uh, the, the, the interest in trends, I think, speaks to... 
an adventurousness, right? Like right. A, a, a drive to experiment and to taste new ingredients and, and hopefully to connect with the cuisines and the cultures and the histories behind them. Right. And I mean, this is where I think I've become kind of a curmudgeon, like curmudgeonly like aesthetic person around these things where I'm like, I don't know. Like, I just think that uh, people's and then this is a very vegan thing to say, I guess, is that like your desire or your preferences aren't the most important thing in the world yeah. like you you know some we might have to suffer a little in terms of like uh, always satisfying our our cravings uh, it's very anti-capitalist I, you know say. i mean how could you? <laughs> uh sorry i was uh i just read a book uh, adam gopnik who's a, a right, food right. writer for new yorker primarily and but he i just read a book of his called the table comes first where he talks about these sort of uh, opposing drives in food and in food trends in particular that the two ends of the spectrum are are purity and and newness or uniqueness and so we his theory whether we agree with it or not it talks about we we swing back and forth that we're in a pure moment where we want this like true form of the food and farmers markets and and uh, like connecting with heirloom varieties of vegetables or meat or whatever it is. And then the new form, which is molecular gastronomy and interesting ingredients and the Impossible Burger, and that, that there's always this sort of tension between those yeah. two impulses. Um, how, how do you, as a journalist, as someone with a platform and an audience, how do you uh, sort of manage the responsibility that you have or the, the power that you have to push that debate? Right. Um, and what's hard for me is that while I'm, I'm like this curmudgeonly anti-capitalist aesthetic about uh, what we should desire <laughs> in food, um, I love molecular gastronomy. Like I just ate, the, I went to Mercado Little Spain. Well, I was just there today, but I was also there recently and I ate like a liquid olive and I was delighted by it. It's <laughs> a liquid olive. Liquid olive. Yeah, it's everyone, like a spurified olive. Yeah, right. it's a spurified olive. And it's, it, taste, it tasted good. It was a cool sensation. I was like, this is fun. It cost two twenty five. I don't know. And um, <laughs> like $2.25. So like, um, and it was, a, you know, a fun experience for that much money. Um, but yeah, so I, I try to balance, I think like most explicitly right now I have this column at Nylon, like a vegan recipe column. So, and I've only done three so far, but I have plans for the rest of them. Um, and trying to balance like the, like I did, my second column was about uh, zines, like vegan zines um, and the history of them and how influential they've been to vegans and, and, and otherwise around like m merging veganism with other political movements and that sort of thing and, and, and identity politics and all that. Um, and then, you know, I'll also write about, uh, you know, a chef who is, you know, cooking with their vegetables from their local farm. And then, uh, but, you know, then otherwise I also write about like cocktails. So, uh, I'm always kind of dealing with this tension of like, you know, you, you have to enjoy life, but you also have to be thoughtful about it. I don't know. So are all vegans <laughs> miserable and unhappy all the time? Is that... I don't think so, um, because most of them are like eating Impossible Burgers and like drinking milkshakes, and you know <laughs> the <laughs> like, new Starbucks milkshake thing with Ariana Grande. That's like right. actually not vegan. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that was a whole thing. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing too. Like, with, yeah, vegans get very upset if you're like if you say you're vegan and then you do something that seems not completely vegan. But um, but no, I you know a lot of veganism right now is built around consumerism and like Instagram yeah. is fostering that and and. I mean, in all, all food people are, you know, there are people in here who are going to take pictures of their pizza and, and, and that'll signify something about them and their life. But in veganism, it's like weird because you're you're eating a like soft serve cone and you're you're acting as though that 
is a good deed that you're doing. Like yeah. when it's it's just buying a saucer of ice cream cone, and we don't know you don't know what ingredients were used in that, and like even like the best vegan ice cream is made with like cashew milk and coconut milk and it's like but you're making it in brooklyn and those things don't grow here and like mm-hmm. what is the impact of that and so and uh, almonds are very bad for the exactly yeah and it's like i you know I, i'm eating ice cream all the time but like <laughs> at the same time it's like um i feel like in veganism there is this like real resistance to asking those kinds of questions why but do you think that is because because it's already such a such a you know you're giving up so much already to be vegan and and then then you're like I've I've done my part and that's it and like if I eat the impossible burger I'm like saving the world or whatever um but yeah cuz you've already given up so much <laughs> Do you have a, a working definition what are there things that well, I mean our guest last week um is an oyster farmer right. and he talked about potentially oysters being considered vegan. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, is, I have an oyster tattooed on my okay. arm right now. I, I is love honey oyster. vegan. Like what are, what, what yeah. where are your limits? What, what's your boundary of veganism? Right. So I feel like I, I want to redefine veganism <laughs> to mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I would like to live in a world where you didn't need to call anything vegan, you know, where it's like we're, we're all doing the least amount of harm naturally that would be nice but um yeah i eat oysters for my own personal reasons i come from long island like that is like oysters are from there they're from lots of places but like oysters are very important um and honey usually people are like is honey okay and i'm like sure because i don't like to be annoying anyway and so but also it's like you know the bees don't die when you eat honey but similarly to dairy or you know um eggs it's those animals don't die but you still don't eat their products so and I've, I'm sure that there are a lot of vegans who would hate me for eating oysters or, or eating honey, um, which is fine. <laughs> is there... But if they're being treated well. Right. And I mean, that's the idea. But like then it, it would, it's like, OK, well, if there's chickens being treated well, can't we eat their eggs? And I would say yes. Like and yeah. Um, and if there's a farm where, you know, they slaughter animal, you know, they have animals there to serve a purpose and they slaughter them very rarely and then eat the meat, like, you know, that also, am I going to say that that's a bad thing? No. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, I, in Long Island, I went to an egg and dairy farm, don't know slaughter at all. And it was like the happiest chickens, the happiest cows. They like run up to you. They want to be pet because you, you can tell that they've been taken care of. And it was like the best eggs, the best milk that we've ever had. And so it was like this. Yeah, it was like, well, should we be in this? But at the same time, yeah. these people, like these animals are happy right. and, and we're helping them support their farm. I don't know. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. No, my, my thinking on all of this completely changed by just going to more farms. And, and seeing um, people treat animals in a in a completely like familial way, mm-hmm. like, yeah. And it does seem like veganism is often defined more by what's excluded right. rather than what's included. Yeah. I mean, I'm not vegan, and it's not it's not something I know a lot about. But but right, like this. I mean, even the way that I just asked you my last yeah, question, yeah, yeah. like, it's, are is honey okay? Are oysters okay? We're we're already kind of drawing lines rather than building out from a central philosophy. Yes. And I, I, I want to, I, I would hope to push people more toward building outward and, and, mm-hmm. and moving more toward a more holistic, sustainable framework rather than just, you know, we don't do eat this. We don't do this. That sort of thing. Why do you, not to put the blame on you right, for of all of all vegans, <laughs> but you know, like Bourdain was sort of famously right. anti-vegetarian or anti-vegan, I think partially because there's this perceived sort of holier than thou right. judgment yeah. Yeah. That, that often comes along with it. 
why do you think that is? And is there a is there a way to change that mentality? Uh, I would hope there is. I mean, I've never been a holier than thou. I'm sure I've had my moments, but <laughs> um, but I've never felt like I'm better than someone because I haven't eaten meat or and when I haven't eaten dairy or haven't eaten eggs. Like I, that's certainly not how I have ever felt. And there are people who have felt that way and they're usually men. Um, but I mean, I've like, I've got are people who have felt which way judgmental, super, or yeah, judgmental, anti- hardcore vegans. Like mm. we were just talking before the show about, you know, eating insects. And I was mm-hmm. saying I had Soleil Ho, San Francisco Chronicle restaurant critic, brilliant writer on my show to talk about that because she had authored a graphic novel about eating insects. And I had posted a picture from it on my Instagram story and been like, you know, so excited to interview Soleil about this. And like it was a page with something about, you know, why it's sustainable to eat insects. And Mm -hmm. some vegan man responded like, or we could just eat plants. And I'm like, you know what? Like, okay, so I'm not even supposed to have this conversation about this. Like that's that's defining everything by, you know, cutting out what it's not. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So and I feel like that's so so awful and boring you know and and totally antithetical to what and like I don't usually call myself a journalist but like it's antithetical to what journalism is it's like we're supposed to have conversations so why are people so opposed to it what's the because they just I mean I guess but this is a terrible comparison but when you when people try and be uh, compassionate toward pro-life people and they're like well if you thought that like all these babies were being murdered that sort of thing then wouldn't you be upset about it and it's like and that's how vegans feel I guess is like oh the, all these animals are being murdered and I can't I have to draw really hard lines about who I even talk to or interact with or engage with or and even ideas that I can't even engage with the idea mm-hmm. of eating insects and what that would mean ecologically and like that's uh, I think that's bad. <laughs> what, so, what is your ultimate stance on insects, or what? Were, oh, what was the conversation with Soleil like? The conversation with Soleil was really cool, but I mean, it mostly focused on like what could go wrong in eating insects. Like, you know, there are great sorts of protein, et cetera, et cetera, and m- most of the world eats insects, you know, easily without all this fraught discussion of how weird it is. And we talked about how in the U.S., like, there's been a lot of focus on cricket. Mm-hmm. Make using crickets for like protein bars and protein balls and that sort of thing. Anything where you can't see the cricket. Exactly. Yeah. And so like, and she was pointing out how that could create um, issues around like overproduction of crickets. And then you, you know, same thing with like bananas, you know, like mm-hmm. where they become diseased and then all of a sudden all gone. And all tomatoes. Yeah, exactly. And so like um, that, that was more what that conversation was like. Yeah. Um, I, I have I have no hard lines about anything. Like, I have no ultimate decisions about literally anything I eat. <laughs> I think insects are, it's an interesting, like, there was a lot of conversation with someone else about if they have an exoskeleton, if they have, if they're, because they're not sentient, like, right. you can eat them, but then fish aren't sentient. And then it, it's, again, it goes into, like, where do you draw, what right. is the ultimate right. point of veganism? It, we don't eat sentient things or we're doing better for the environment. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would hope it leans more toward the latter, I think. And then, but also with, you know, compassion, I guess. But for me, it's like my, I have my own personal boundaries around, like, you know, I just don't want to eat animals. You know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> another, another thing that I sort of struggle with related to this debate is, is how much, how much of a personal responsibility should we be taking and how much influence really can an individual in deciding to change what they eat? How much influence is that one person going to have? And yes, fine. There are arguments about 
collective action and one person leads to another person leads sure. to another person. But but to me, it seems like most of the, the damage is done in meat systems, in food waste, in all of these conversations. The damage is done way before right. the individual gets involved. It's done at the corporate level, at the yeah. manufacturing level. And and me deciding not to eat meat is going to, I mean, not, not be zero impact right. but but pretty minimal super minimal yeah so well yeah go ahead no and i mean that's why i think that veganism has to have more it has to be it has to happen before you eat the soft serve ice cream cone and post it on instagram like yeah. it has to it has to incorporate a lot more work that most people are not willing to do and like obviously like i'm you know because i'm a writer that's also that's part of my like i guess activism in this space is is that i have a platform to be like well we you know doing this helps in this way and and it, there are a lot of arguments for veganism just being kind of a boycott and thus grounded in consumerism anyway um there those are arguments but at the same time again you know it it collectively one would hope it has some sort of grander impact but i think as we're seeing the grander impact is really just that a lot of people with money decide there's an avenue to make more money by smushing together vegetables to make meat patties. <laughs> it's that weird. It's almost like the the issues with feminism where it's like it's easier to buy the shirt. Yes. But it's harder to go to Alabama and do yeah. something about it. Yeah. Or do you or, really want to go do that? Think about where the shirt was made and who mm-hmm, made it and how mm-hmm. much the women in working in a sweatshop were paid and what rights they had and decisions about agency in terms of making decisions about yeah, their and careers al- and things like that. And also I, w- I had a really weird like existential moment um, a few months ago in a southern city, I guess I won't name, which just to not throw anyone under the bus at a conference where it was like all these women, we were talking about how um, women's suffrage really came about in these like tea rooms and women were kind of used that as like this back channel way of getting people to be ply men to right. be more open to um, having women vote. And I looked around the room and I just thought to myself, I know most of you probably voted against your own social interests in the last right. election, but like at the same time, do you choose your own family well over right. it, it's like a really complicated, yeah. it's complicated to, it, it, exactly. to go back up the chain. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. And that's why I've, I've, the, the longer I've been ve- like in, in involved in veganism, the more I've become, you know, uh, afraid of making any pronouncements about any, anything <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um how did you how did you get into vegan baking and what was what was the process like to learn the particular ingredients and, and techniques that go along with it? right yeah so i've been baking a lot like traditionally and then i decided i would i was like okay i'm vegan now so i'm just gonna buy vegan baking cookbooks and use those and learn how to do it that way and then everything like sucked like, <laughs> re- like it really didn't sucked. taste good it tasted awful so like um, I hate Earth Balance a lot. I've there are people yeah. who you, you hate what a lot? Earth, Earth Balance, <laughs> which is like a it's a vegan butter replacement, like super. It's like palm, I think there's palm oil in it. Um, it's like pressed oils, just yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. oils smushed together. Uh, veganism a lot of smushing things together. Um, but yeah, so it tasted terrible. Like there was canola oil in the cake, and then like using Earth Balance to make the frosting, and just like tons of sugar and. It was all terrible. And then um, I was like, well, learned about this oil, coconut oil. Like, this is literally in, like, 2011. So, like, and I was like, oh, maybe you could use that. And I, like, did so much research and spent so much time and so much money trying to make, like, butter from coconut oil. Um, and then I finally figured it out. And that was cool. Um, how how, how do you do it? Out? What's the secret? <laughs> Tell it's, us. No, so it, so it wouldn't be, like, it wouldn't taste like butter. But it was perfect for using for, like, frosting and that sort of thing. Um, like, so I would use melted coconut oil in, in a lot of 
uh, applications, but to make cookies or to make frosting, I would blend together like 80% oil. It wasn't an exact science, but like 80% oil to 20% coconut milk. So that like kind of mimics butters like oil to milk mm. fat ratio. Mm, interesting. And then I would like chill it and it would be solid and I would just use it like butter. Yeah. Um, and it, it actually like people liked it a lot, like who didn't even like frosting usually. And I think it was because yeah, it like was frosting. such a, it was such like a m- completely bland flavor that it was based off. Like of. it would take on the flavor. It would take you put on, on exactly the flavor of just what you would put on. So like, especially if you like peanut butter, chocolate, like it would just like be so much, so much more that flavor than it would be like, the powdered sugar or whatever because yeah or butter well do you think that there are just um certain things so i've been also doing a lot of vegan cooking for um this other show that i've been um doing with well and good and there are just certain things that feels like it's just hard to recreate vegan and perhaps at some point you're adding so much weird starches or weird ramifications of palm oil or whatever to make that final product look the same as a regular macaron perhaps like is it even worth it it's the same for like the impossible burger argument like what what do you think about that right 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 and uh i mean you know i i struggle like to me obviously it's like you know eating a eating aquafaba is not that much different (laughs) from eating an egg white like in terms of grossness you know um (laughs) Like I, th- I think aquafaba tastes terrible in big good applications. What's what's aquafaba right. for listeners who might not? Yeah, it is, oh yeah, it is the water in like a can of chickpeas <laughs> that you can whip into like a meringue meringue like substance. There's just like residual starch from exactly. the chickpeas that have soaked in it. Yes. And so, yeah, people make, like, macarons out of that. People make meringues. People, they use it to make, like, Swiss meringue buttercream or whatever. Um, they make mayonnaise at Sir yes. Kensington's <laughs> Yes. Which, the, so the mayonnaise application, and also there are now, like, vegan butters. There's this one called faba butter that they take the the aquafaba from, like, hummus makers and then use it to mm. make mayo or to make butter. And so, like, that's a, like, cool thing to use up something that would otherwise, like, go down the drain i guess yeah um but yeah it is weird like they're really good macarons um vegan macarons are made by like this woman this bakery uh sweet marisa's and um they she does not use aquafaba she uses i think um i think she uses a modified soy protein um which also like molecular gastronomy type chefs would use to make like foams and that sort of thing oh like soy lecithin not lecithin no oh interesting i have a bag of it at home (laughs) called versa whip oh yes yeah yeah yeah. i thought that was chemically produced i don't know i don't think it's gm like i i honestly again i don't know what she's using i've only been trying to figure it out um what does an aquafaba meringue taste like it tastes a little beany. It tastes a little like it's <laughs> <laughs> It tastes that like it came sense. out of a can of chickpeas. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like I can when you do like just the meringue like by itself and you taste it, it tastes like cereal milk a little bit. Like, that doesn't sound bad. No, it's not terrible, oh. but it's also like you know you're not going to use that to make like something nice. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. We're gonna take a quick break. <laughs> on that note, uh, we'll be back in two minutes. Stay tuned. All right. This episode is brought to you by Tillit, the style leader in hotel and restaurant uniforms. Tillit is redefining workwear for the hospitality industry, ensuring that you and your team feel great from stove to street. Tillit is a full line of workwear clothing from pants to work shirts, chef aprons, jackets, dresses, chef coats, and more, with over 95% of their garments produced in the USA. Each hotel and chefware collection is timed with the seasons, comprised of exceptional functional fabrics and built to last. 
Custom uniforms can be tailored for your restaurant, hotel, or store. Learn more at tillitnyc.com. That's T-I-L-I-T-N-Y-C.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome back. This is Why Food Podcast. I am your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. I'm Ethan Frisch. And today we're with Alicia Kennedy, a freelance food writer and the podcast host, podcast host ugh, <laughs> of Meatless. We were just talking about uh, vegan aquafaba. ingredients, aquafaba. What are some of the other kind of staple ingredients of, of a vegan bakery or a vegan kitchen? I mean, for me, like it's coconut oil, coconut milk, maybe cashew milk. Um, what do you use cashew milk for? You know, just in cake, like because it's okay. cheaper than coconut milk. So. <laughs> and it tastes good. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and, you know, and flax and arrowroot, um, those are those are the staple that, that I'd say. Yeah. Do you prefer arrowroot over tapioca? Yes. Why? It's less gummy. Mm. It has less flavor. It's just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> do you, how do you, because I feel like, I mean, we've, we've talked around this on right, a lot right. of issues over the last half hour, but um, how much of vegan baking is trying to recreate flavors that you would get from non-vegan bacon and, and how much of it is trying to uh, create sort of create new. new food flavors or experiences? There is no, I don't think, I, I don't think there's anything about creating newness at all in it. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> would, is there something that you would want to create? Like, like recreate? Yeah, not or recreate, just like, is there like a thing that if you could just build from scratch, not related to anything? Oh boy. Not? I mean, that's a huge question. No, I don't. There's nothing in my head that I've been like, oh, I would like, I've imagined something. I'm not that creative. So I'm like, no, there, there's nothing I've thought of. I'm, I'm really just like, I want a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have, what's like the most the most uh, vegan vegan dessert that you've made or what what's the vegan well, dessert carob that you feel tart like carob tart is like the most vegan dessert <laughs> I, I love carob Car- I feel like carob doesn't really? get I the have... credit that it deserves I love carob as, a, as its own flavor not as a chocolate replacement but I, I just like the the tartness the like fruity nutty combination sure. of flavors anyway sorry go ahead no, and talk I about have, carob I have a lot of carob in my house that I have to use. So I'm, I've literally been thinking like, okay, I have to make a carob tart and I'll probably like do a, a piece in my column about like carob and, and it's, it's significance to the vegan community um, with a tart recipe. What is its significance? Just because people, they, there used to be like no availability of vegan chocolate. So it just had to be carob. And so like when you used to, I mean, RIP Angelica Kitchen, which is like, I used to love it. I did. Oh, I, didn't, I remember that. I know. Place. It's not like I loved it so much. Like I was like, oh, yummy, yummy. But yeah. I was like, this is like a very satisfying like context in which to eat. And they had the carob, they had a carob tart there. That was good. Can you tell our listeners who are not familiar? Carob, yeah. Uh, it's you know what you probably know better because I I'm it's just a like pod. It's it grows yeah. on a tree. It's a brown. Uh, it looks like a almost like a flat tamarind pod or like it's a, not related to chocolate n- cacao, cacao. Not at all. It's a traditional Middle Eastern ingredient, a sweetener, and and carob powder it itself is very sweet just naturally, and it has kind of a vaguely chocolatey. Although I feel like that's almost more of a sort of cultural association right. that's been forced on it. It's a sort of a nutty tart sweet. 
flavor, chicory almost, or hmm. or like very acidic coffee, kind of that kind of profile. Right? Ethan's the best like at describing. Fair. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I um yeah I have Sun Sunspire. The brand sent me a lot of chocolate chips and carob. So that I have to, I have to do something with those. <laughs> I uh, I brought back a whole bunch of carob powder from Turkey at the end of last summer. Try because I have this like thing. I like carob, and so I was trying to convince <laughs> people to use it, and maybe we could market it as a spice. And and I think the association right. with crunchy 1980s and 90s health food, yes. which is sort of how I, you know, I grew up going to the health food store on the Upper West Side and getting <laughs> carob covered almonds or something because somehow that was at least perceived to be a healthier snack than a chocolate covered almond, right. whether it is or not, I have no <laughs> idea, but, but it must've been, there must've been stabilizers and wax right. and all kinds yeah. of other things in it to, to make it act like chocolate. Cause it doesn't naturally, I don't right. think it has yeah. anywhere near the, the natural fat yeah. content. Yeah. Yeah. What is it traditionally used with? That's a really good question. I've seen it sold in markets in, in Turkey and Lebanon and other places in the Middle East, these like big pods. Um, I, I think as a sweetener, I've heard that there's a, sometimes like a masculinity thing associated with it because the pods themselves could be sort of could be seen as sort of phallic if you were if you were looking (laughs) for that interesting okay um but i yeah it's a great question i don't know off the top of my head sort of traditional recipes that it's used in if you get that into the hands of like the right chef we could maybe reform carob Mm, all right yeah Yeah. all right (laughs) done new marketing campaign plan plan made let's do it i was trying to to get it to some people as a uh, a low glycemic or no sugar, no added sugar sweetener for uh, some a barbecue sauce. We had a, had a conversation with a company about a bar, but I don't know. They never went anywhere. So, oh. um, why? How did we get to carob? You know, vegan baking. Oh right. <laughs> it is the most vegan thing. Is like a carob, like a you know a tart shell filled with like some sort of carob substance <laughs> do you how do you feel about carob do you like it do you oh i always liked it but i always as a novelty it's i didn't grow up with it for sure like uh, you know and but uh once i decided to like get into this vegan lifestyle um i was i was totally on board with the idea of it yeah can we talk about something else that uh, i realized wasn't wasn't vegan that yeah, i was yeah, surprised yeah. about so i was talking to uh we work with a farm in guatemala for cardamom and and i was talking to somebody else in guatemala and and working with farmers to grow the little tiny red insects that get ground up to make the, I mean, actually you're the perfect person yeah. to talk to about this. You, <laughs> you're nodding. So yeah, tell yeah. us this story. Well, no, like the, they ground up those, those bugs to make like Campari red. They do? Yeah. 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 The, the, I, I don't, is it still, do they still, is that how they color Campari or is it I, kind of an older, more traditional? I, I haven't gotten process. any updates on this. I must, you know what? I'm, I'm going to assume that Campari because of how much they're, they're creating is using something else to dye it red now. Um, I know I've recently talked to a uh, Brooklyn-based aperitivo maker, St. Agrestis. Um, their new Inferno bitters are red, and like they're, they've clearly been trying to just mimic Campari, but with better ingredients. And so they and they are not using the bugs at Do all. Do you remember what they're called? I'm trying I to don't. remember. I don't. Is it the beetle? Because we oh, this was a whole thing, too, when uh, Starbucks had a strawberry frappuccino that was colored with the bugs. The same bug. The same bug. Really? Yeah, these are the, the bugs that make things red, but I don't know what they're called. I don't know what they're Does, called. Do they either. have a flavor? I, they don't seem to. And at least in Guatemala, they're, they're, they seem to grow on, on cactuses. So they're growing these kind of nopales, like big flat plate cactuses. And the bugs live on the plate of the cactus. And then they die. Oh, I think wow. they die naturally, whatever their lifespan is. And they collect the little dead red bugs. 
and grind them up and and you get a very intense bright kind of red orange powder yeah someone's drinking a negroni like right here right on the and, other side and, of the and recording probably studio was window. it probably has blood. bugs in it i yeah. hope it has bugs <laughs> that's in so it. interesting and the other thing is the shellac beetle yeah which is a tell me more an insect uh like the 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 waxy coating on apples or or a lot of oh, other really? they grind up beetles to it, make that i believe is made somehow i don't know what the process is but i believe is extracted from a shellac right. beetle it's called a shellac beetle interesting i mean when i was shellac. this is not from bugs but when i was in marrakesh recently i was gifted some I bought some mason spices from a store and they gifted me this thing that's like a natural naturally occurring substance and if you just wet it with some water it's like red like lipstick red and that's what women use for their lip color and it's oh. a natural thing and it it looks kind of like an upside down funnel yeah it was interesting and it it was like at every market that was like a thing there for i guess back when that was like the makeup norm i'm i'm sure they have normal makeup now but like that was a thing right so it's so interesting. Yeah, I'm so glad this is interesting. Actually, my I've been talking to my friend Layla Schlack, who works at Wine Enthusiast, and she's constantly just being like, "People don't know how much how many bugs they're eating all the time," and I'm like, "Yeah, we need to tell them." <laughs> Talk yeah. more about bugs. So, I mean, what if somebody is looking to to get to cook more vegan food or or bake more vegan baked yeah, goods? Yeah, yeah. Where do you recommend they start? What are some uh, what's a good place? Uh, either a cookbook or um, right. some, some other resources. Uh, <laughs> I like you know I, mean, I your have columns obviously. Oh yes, my columns. Yes, uh, I have a like huge collection of vegan and vegetarian cookbooks, but I don't cook from cookbooks like ever. So <laughs> <laughs> I can't like totally recommend. It. I so I recently wrote about Ruffage, which is a new cookbook by um, Ab- Abra Barons, who's a chef and like former farmer in Michigan, and her cookbook is amazing and it's like completely focused on vegetables and I think is the best thing to, to learn how to cook vegetables from. Um, in terms of vegan baking, or th- for me, I've always been more interested in, in trying, not trying to like veganize traditional recipes, but like trying to figure out how traditional recipes work so that I can make vegan stuff from those principles. So uh, I, I really rarely ever follow a vegan baking recipe or a traditional baking recipe to the the letter i'm like you know i i like to just adapt things and try can we also talk a little bit about your podcast before we get into fun uh questions at the end (laughs) um can you tell us how you started the podcast and also how you think about the guests who come on i mean ethan and i have our own weird little process of figuring out how to stage people but how do you keep uh the themes recurring but interesting and how do you you know space out people so that they kind of build off each other right yeah so the reason i started the podcast was actually that i got a press release for the superiority burger cookbook and i said uh, you know, should I be doing a podcast? I don't know. And I sent an email back to the publicist and was like, hey, I'm launching a podcast. Would Brooks want to come on? And they said yes. And then I was like, I guess I have a podcast now. <laughs> um, so that's how it started. Uh, and ever since I have, you know, just I've mo- I've had on a lot of like friends, um, but friends who do things in food. So it makes sense. Um and I, I never make a, I never care about having a vegan on necessarily. I feel like the conversation's always very, very different when I do have a vegan on, and it's like we're like, you know, really, you know, getting in there with like the, you know, Carol Adams references and that sort of thing. But like, um, who wrote the sexual politics of meat? She's very important. But um, yeah, so I just, you know, I have people on who are thoughtful about food. That's that's my only real rule. And you know, I don't have anyone on who isn't 
you know, who has never even thought about why they eat meat or eat eggs or eat dairy or, mm-hmm. and has never like thought about the connection between like what we eat and where it comes from, that sort of thing. Like, you know, I have uh, my friend Tia Keenan, who's a cheese writer in Queens, brilliant. Um, I had her on and we talked about, you know, cheese and the differences between, you know, European processes and American processes. But then it also like completely got into like, you know, what is our restaurants going to dissolve if we end capitalism? That sort of, So it's like mm-hmm. it's a very like broad spectrum and um of people from chefs and writers and activists and uh that sort of thing um what is the sexual politics of meat now i want to know <laughs> so the sexual politics of me- politics of meat is a, a a text by carol adams that makes connections between the ways we regard animals and the ways we regard women Interesting. so um basically it's an eco-feminist text about how eating consuming animals is a patriarchal act interesting yeah. how do you feel about it Oh, I love it. I mean, theoretically, love it. <laughs> Do I, th- you know, uh, I feel like there's always a more nuance than that. And, and she does express a lot of nuance. And she's also, she also wrote a really great book recently called Burger um, about like how, how America's been obsessed with burgers forever and, and why that is. And, and, but to do it through a vegan lens, I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Are there, are there other books or other writers who you, who you really admire or who you recommend people look for absolutely yeah Bryant Terry of course and Breeze Harper um Bryant Terry is more on the cookbook end and then Breeze Harper is another is a, a black academic who who works in veganism and and they're all very brilliant um uh there's another one of my favorite people who's vegan and cooks is uh Lagusta Yearwood who's who has a chocolate shop called Augusta's Lagusta's Luscious in New Paltz um, and her cookbook's coming out in the fall, and I'm super, super excited about that. So I, w- I would say follow her on Instagram because <laughs> she does write a lot on Instagram. <laughs> um, and then in the last few minutes, we pivot to a, a lighter, not that this has been a particularly heavy conversation, but uh, we're going to ask you some funny questions and Fun, yeah. see what happens. Cool. Um, if you could master any skill overnight, what would it be? Um you you use this as an example, and I was like, should we I think you about this that? Was coming. Yeah. I know, I know. What would it be? Um, and like like mass, not just like be okay at it, but like be you the are the best. best. Oh, uh, play guitar. Oh, <laughs> well, actually, I think we've heard that like of a few course. times. Yeah. yeah, that is that would Music be because everyone just out. wants to be a rock star. No, no, you so know. So would you be a rock star? Is that what you would do with your new newfound guitar mastery? I guess that would be cool. Yeah. What kind of music <laughs> would you play? I mean, I don't know, like power pop. I, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Um, what did you eat for lunch when you were growing up? You know, I, okay, so I've always been like a weird eater and not a weird eater. Like, I've, no, because I, I was never like really a picky eater, but I've always been a very snobby eater. And that's like, now going back to everything I've said, I'm sure that makes sense. But um, I'm like, when I was a kid, I would never eat white bread or American cheese. So because they're gross, they're really gross. And like, I knew that like viscerally as a child, and, like my my mom would have to like make me like she would send me to school with like salad and chicken and like um, it's quite nice. Yeah, no, that was nice of her. Um, but yeah, because I would never eat the school food and I would never eat like a sandwich like a normal child. Yeah, school <laughs> food is really sad. I, I remember eating a lot of chicken nuggets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if you could have a superpower, what would your superpower be? Um, <laughs> you know, if this is, again, it's like a question that like, oh, this comes up all the time, I guess, is, as a hypothetical, but I've never answering it properly. But I think, I guess, uh, 
Teleportation. <laughs> oh, yes. That's mine, you know, too. I yeah. think when, when we ask guests this question, uh, transportation... Uh, just well, this like is New York, yeah. the, the, the practicality, <laughs> yes. like we all want a practical superpower to not have to sit on the subway during rush hour or whatever yeah, it is. Yes. is that, feel, would you, would you use it for anything more, uh, extravagant yeah, or like poetic or is it really just about, I mean, around? you know, no, I'd go, I, I would go take myself like to Spain, I guess, and eat and then come home for, go for yeah. lunch. Yeah. I just go <laughs> to Spain for lunch. Yeah. I feel like, uh, when I, uh, women will say teleportation and then when we have men on they, it's like a similar idea but they'll be like I want to fly mm. right. like more grandiose what do you think that says I think it's a you know <laughs> I don't know what that says what does it say Ethan men want to fly and women want to teleport I, I mean I think it just goes back to like how things are marketed towards men and women in a certain way it's like right. we're trying to get things done men are like Look at me. Oh, I'm super yeah. mad. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's it. Maybe the, the fact that when you're flying, other people can, can see, see you, you flying. And when you're teleporting, they can't. It's not like about getting to A and B. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. peacocking. Right. A little bit, yeah. yeah. A lot bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, since you don't eat eggs, what is your favorite egg replacement? I, I, all egg replacements suck. I mean, <laughs> it, in terms of like a replacement that I could like scramble up or, or make into an omelet. Like, chickpea flour. Okay. Chickpea mm, flour. Okay. Uh, you can make an omelet with that and it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Does it? I mean, is it like something you look forward to no. eating in the morning, no, or it's never, like never. Only, okay? <laughs> it's uh, it's like uh, it's too thick and spongy. Maybe someone's better at making them than I am. I don't know. Um, but you need that um, that that Indian the black salt that makes yeah. things taste like eggs to use it to make it taste like eggs a little bit. Oh. Um, but kala namak. Yeah. yeah um, it's a, like it has sulfur in it or something, right? Right. Right. So it's eggy. Oh. Yeah. Um. But uh, so I yeah chickpea flour I think does the best job. Don't um, they make like tofu out of chickpea flour somewhere? Yes, yeah, right? at Toad Style in Bed Stuy they make the Burmese. Yeah, tofu. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Shan tofu, that's what it's called. Yeah, some, yeah, 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 yeah. And some of the yeah I think Tibetan food also. There's mm -hmm. a chick or a, some other bean based tofu. Anyway, um, yeah. have you converted family members to oh, veganism? Oh, absolutely not. No. What, I mean, to go the... back to my, yeah, my, no one in my family listens to me. They, my sister, when she was like 15, she's almost 19. She did an amazing April Fool's joke where she texted our entire family this grand paragraph that was like, Alicia, you've really changed my life and I'm going to be vegan now and, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, thank you. And she's like, April Fool's. <laughs> um, so that's, that's how my so family cruel. is about it. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of your uh, favorite vegan restaurants or vegan dishes at non-vegan restaurants in the city? Ooh, um, at non-vegan restaurants. Um, I mean, I like to eat pizza that has no cheese on it um, and has like... Roberto's has that. I know, yeah, with olives and arugula. That's usually what I go to when I go to... Uh, we go to Barbancino in Crown Heights a lot. Um, at non-vegan restaurants, I, all I eat is this. I don't know why this is difficult to answer, but uh, I... You Some know. like highlights of the last week or so? Well... I have a vegan paella in a bag. <laughs> oh, yes. We were talking about that before the show. We don't know what's in it. We don't know what's in it. I'm super excited to eat it, though, because it's from Mercado Little Spain, Spain, Mercado Little Spain, which is at Hudson Yards, which that's a whole other topic. But um, Have I you was... been to the shawarma at Hudson Yards yet? No. Like... Is it good? No, 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 the giant. Oh, like, thing. the shawarma. <laughs> There's shawarma there? Uh, no, it's no. Spanish now. Yeah. I've seen it, but I'm like, I. I didn't go in it. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I have a vegan paella in my in a, in a bag that I'm excited to find out what's in it uh, from that Jose Andres restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> mm, man, 
best book you've read recently? Oh, boy. Uh, Fascination by Kevin Killian. Ooh, that was um, like a you knew right away. <laughs> I like that. But also Vile Days, which is a collection of Gary Indiana's Village Voice columns from the late 80s. Um, both of these are from Semiotech. So I'm like, obviously I made it in English and I'm, I like reading. And like most of, most of what I read is like uh, weird fiction or weird memoirs and like uh, art criticism. That's what I, I don't really read anything about food unless I have to for work. Um, oh, building off that, do you read the comments to any of the things you write? Oh, absolutely not. I, <laughs> no. I mean, you know, it's nice when people say nice things on Twitter and tag me or whatever, but I, you know, I've, I've, I wrote something for like the Washington Post last year, which was super silly of me to do but it was just like an opinion thing because like they'd announced that gordon ramsay was going to do a travel food show or whatever oh, yeah. and they did they ever like, do that mm, i think it's still happening okay but someone like made me they were like hey do you want to react to this and i was like i've never done that before sure let's react to it and then like the comments on that apparently were a nightmare but i didn't look at them my friends did i think i read <laughs> that piece actually before i knew you oh yeah. yeah it was i agreed with it oh thank you thank you um it, it, it would have been a much stronger piece had i not had to talk about gordon ramsay at all like sure. yeah. yeah do you do you have a couple of pieces of advice for an aspiring food writer or, or food journalist absolutely which uh definitely like find your niche like don't just be i, I think being a food writer especially right now being a generalist is a terrible terrible idea like it's it's all about like your very strong voice around an expertise and then um just be cool when you pitch people <laughs> Good advice what for, does that for mean life in for general. life yeah just be, cool. just be cool like you know don't don't you know demand to know why your piece was rejected don't yeah. tell an editor that they made a mistake like don't don't think people you know do any that. better than yeah. your editors like i mean of course do i think that people who've rejected my ideas are making a huge mistake yes but i've never told them that <laughs> and like that's why i can keep writing i think <laughs> alicia it's been such a pleasure oh, having you, you on thank the you. podcast where can our <laughs> listeners uh, read your work and and listen to your podcast uh my website is alicia-kennedy.com and that has links to everything a l-i-c-i-a yes and then kennedy like the president and yes. where they can they <laughs> find you on social alicia d kennedy on instagram and alicia kennedy on twitter Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for uh, listening again this week. Thanks to Amanda, our awesome sound engineer, and to uh, Red Crickets for our theme song, which is called Blind. Um, and I don't know, anything else? You can, as always, email us, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can get in touch with me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you can find me at, at Chef Jenny Dorsey. And you can always find us on social at Why Food Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.